striding across the battlefield, trailing the souls of their, of their dead enemies behind them. <laughs> and their dead friends. Welcome to episode 52 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined once again by Dan Wellington. Hello! And for the first time, Tom Taylor Big. Hi there. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer, Join our growing Discord, and now you can also find us over on YouTube, where we post regular narrative battle reports. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions, or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show, you can do, by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can join our Patreons-only group chat, and get early access to many of our videos on YouTube. The support from our patrons is the main way we continue to grow and improve our content, so a big thank you to all of our supporters. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do, by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the show. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And tonight, Dan, our own little community is indeed growing because we're welcoming to the show for the first time, Tom. Hello again. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much for inviting me. And it's um, and as we'll sure I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, I run my own podcast, so it's very nice to appear on somebody else's because I know I don't have to edit it. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite nice when you actually get to come on a show and you don't have to worry about the edit, isn't it? It's uh, it, it makes it feel just like just quite a lot of fun, really. <laughs> well, yeah, I just uh, for you know I did some prep preparation for the episode tonight and I made notes and, and all that kind of stuff and and I was just there going, yeah, it's just pure hobby stuff. It's all lovely. So yeah, I'm excited to uh, to come on and talk about this stuff. So yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think our our topics are going to feel quite a. Uh, quite light-hearted compared to some of the things that you talk about over on 40 Curious. So, uh, yeah, why don't you give the listeners at home, for those who haven't um, maybe discovered your show before, give them a little lowdown about what the 40 Curious podcast is all about. Okay, so that's 40 Curious, that's uh, 4-0, and then capital K, uh, and then Curious with um, the rest of the word Curious in, instead of um, at the end. And it's basically a podcast which is just because, you know, when when you're when you're talking to people across the gaming table, when you meet people down at the club or whatever, they're often you 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 you'll skate over things and you'll have a little chat, and then you'll find out oh you're like a, a neurophysiologist or something like that, or like you're a PhD historian, or um, and all of us bring our like all of us, all of us bring our outside interests into the hobby. Like everyone's got their own way of um, you know sort of way of, of approaching it. And so 40 Curious is basically me getting other people to talk about the way their their outside interests intersect with their hobby and the way it interacts. Um, so what we do is we, we pick a topic. Um, so 
for example, one of the episodes was how um, the three Eldari factions in 40k, um, how you'd approach them as from the point of view of a moral philosopher and examining how each of those three factions has reacted to the existence of Slanish. So you're kind of like taking, I mean, on that one I learned you know, a lot about moral philosophy, but it was talking about it through a subject which I knew quite well. And likewise, we had an episode on um, disability representation in 40K and how it relates with Nurgle and with Mechanicus and stuff like that. And that's not being physically disabled myself. That was just a topic I'd never really thought of. And actually to have somebody who's passionate about Nurgle on the tabletop in the law and how where it where it's a good representation of disability and where it falls apart a little bit, just those sorts of things. And hearing people who are experts in subjects and at high level really know their stuff, also talking about something we're mutually passionate about. So I can learn from them, but we've got something in common. It, that's basically it. It's an excuse to talk to interesting people. Yeah, and they, they have all been very interesting conversations. I've listened to every episode you've produced and um, pretty much from day one. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept for a 40k podcast, this idea that everything is basically like a thought exercise based around a particular topic and you say level of expertise. And the fact that you get like actual, you know, ethics professors and stuff to yeah. come on the show to talk or, or somebody the um the last episode with a um, you know a, a naval a canadian naval uh, like systems engineer to talk about actually how navies work and stuff you know talk me tremendous about and that was also that was hugely fun um just to kind of like have those little thought exercises and i i mean i i don't know about you guys but you know it's 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 those type of things those type of interactions which really which really help help the hobby come alive because you're making you make you're, you're seeing it through a new lens and you become more interested in it as a result yeah it's it's um, uh, a lot of areas that um tend to kind of get glossed over in the the broader strokes of the game and the the rule books and stuff but if you if you delve a bit deeper there's a lot going on that we don't necessarily sort of uh, immediately think of yeah, and, I mean, and 40k is like, when you actually think about the amount of time you spend playing the game, as opposed to thinking about the game, talking about the game, painting, converting, designing, like all these things, it's a tiny proportion. And actually the, the thought about it and the kind of the escapism in one sense and the kind of like just, just letting your brain go off on tangents is probably the majority of the, the hobby for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my life is pretty busy with family and jobs and, and all the other kind of stuff. Um, and, and so it's a kind of, yeah, we're just letting my brain wander into this kind of stupid and fun hobby universe kind of thing in all its various different manifestations from the law to the painting to the conversions to the just, you know, kind of just you know, having a beer and drinking with friends while rolling dice and laughing. You know, it, it, it's all, it, it's a really kind of, a broad-ranging hobby, and I'd, I'd like to think that um, some of those podcasts are the type of conversation you'd have in a pub if you had the time to do, to do that, and, and actually designing a conversation around those topics is, is really lovely. Yeah, and it really comes across, like, it's um, it's fair to say that, you know, a bit like our own, it's a, it's a long-form podcast, you know, your episodes are typically... <laughs> 
you know, like yeah. two to three hour things. They're not like you know, quick little sixty minute, um, you know, episodes. But th- those two to three hours, they honestly fly by, like because the conversation is just so engaging and interesting that it's uh, like you see, it's, it's like you're just chatting with another hobbyist about you know whatever could be considered a tangent within a general conversation of the hobby, but because it's the topic of that uh, show, it's you go deep on it and it's it's really fascinating. And don't get diverted into um, into other rants quite as often, or at least I can edit those out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's in the and, uh, and a little version. spoiler for the listeners is that um, Tony is going to be appearing on an episode coming fairly shortly. Hello? I hope. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk about having had experts for all these different topics on and previously, and then next up you're going to be having me on to talk about orcs. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but um, I, I had to come to terms with this quite quickly, was that um, my role on the on the podcast is to be the idiot um, and the one who, who doesn't know about these topics. And, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, just... just you, you know an awful lot. I mean, we have the preparatory conversation and, and like I was just there going, yep, yep, yep. No, you've got this tapped. That's really, I, I had no idea about any of this. So it's, you know, it's great. You are an expert. It's just a different <laughs> type of expert to that. Okay? <laughs> I've just read a lot of Orclaw. <laughs> and I haven't. So I'm going to learn about so it. it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did think it was, um, it was funny how when we were sort of first talking about what we were going to do and obviously we won't spoil it here as such, but um, I proposed this topic idea and <laughs> um, and the sort of like your your first point of feedback was that sounds great but I'm not sure if it'll stretch to a full episode and then when <laughs> and then when I sort of said ah but that's what you think and then because I can talk about this this and this and you're like oh no wait yeah that's that, that's absolutely like a full episode of stuff. Oh yeah, no, absolutely no problem at all. I think we, we we chatted for longer than a full episode without even scratching the surface of it. So yeah, look forward to that in the near future. But um, so if that's obviously you know where you're at with the hobby sort of now today, um, tell us a little bit about how you sort of first got into it. Um, what was the um, the origin point of Warhammer or Games Workshop for you? Uh, well, I'm, I mean. Uh, it it really was. Um, I'm going to age myself here by, like it was. I mean, with 40k, it was the Road Trader rulebook, um, and I think I literally saw the. And I, 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 I was aware of Blood Bowl, and a couple of people at school were, were playing it and that sort of thing. And then I just saw the Space Marines on the front, you know, the classic picture of the Crimson Fists, clearly losing to Orcs, which I'm sure you'd be delighted about. <laughs> um, and just picking up that rule book and just like going it, go reading into it. And I was, I read a lot of 2008D at that point and stuff. And so that kind of like dystopian humans, right? Humans are bad, actually, uh, kind of uh, stuff. And the, the, the satirical aspects of it just kind of absolutely hit on point. It was the game of, of the stuff I read about. Um, and then, as usual, about 14, 15, I kind of just, you know, honestly slightly due to you know pressures from friends and like you know kind of that's lame all that kind of stuff um i stopped and then took a 20 year break and then suddenly i was just like um i was looking for looking for a hobby when i had and had my oldest kid um because i was like i've got to have something for me which doesn't involve you know which 
which I can sort of pick up and it's just for me. It's just a little, little, little kind of like carving out me time. And um, I saw an ad for uh, for Space Hulk on the computer game, and like I literally listened to a podcast about that, um, the Overlords podcast. It was um, unfortunately defunct, but I really enjoyed those guys. Um, and suddenly there was just this. Oh my god! There's this. There's this hole in my life which which I, I hadn't even been aware of of this stuff which I'd loved so deeply back in the day and that was about 2015 and and since then I've just been full on back into it um, yeah, playing and, and in Bristol which is where I'm based um, I, I met up and started playing with some guys who are not only two absolutely lovely guys but like several of the best hobbyists you'll ever meet um, and I'll be recommending them later. Um, just <laughs> like, and so kind of, they set an incredibly high standard of hobby, not in a pressured way, but just like they loved it. And, and it really encouraged me to kind of spread my wings and try stuff and, and, and show no fear in like conversions and painting and all that kind of stuff. And, and I am really, really grateful to the way they, the way they sort of like just their attitude towards it and, and the joy which they bring to it. That's um, great, and and so generally speaking, it's like where I'm at is, you know, life is quite complicated and difficult a lot of the time, and this is a glorious release for me, and I want everybody I know and meet and, and interact in the hobby to have that experience as well. And the more people in, the better. The more different perspectives, um, the better, and you know, and that's you know, part of the the idea of the Forty Curious podcast, but also just kind of that's that's what that's what i love so much about the hobby is that you can it's richer the more people and the more different attitudes and the more different um perspectives which people are bringing in <laughs> the many different paths of the hobbyist you might say <laughs> uh -huh, i see what you did there <laughs> um so yeah for someone who has seen you know your your own collection of models it's a, it's fair to say you put a lot of time and effort and quite a level of creative you know skill and talent into your your own craft world eldar um so how did you uh, how did you sort of end up at um the the eldari is uh, I'm, I'm assuming probably your main faction i don't know if you've oh they are factions now, yeah. Or not. yeah um I mean, I've got a marine army, uh, but for both 30k and um, and 40k. So different armies there. I've got a Mechanicus army in 30k. I've got a little um, Admech and a little Guard kind of force, but nothing substantial. And then, but when I start, when I picked up Harlequins and Eldar again, it felt like coming home. <laughs> um, I mean, just the, the the story of um, you know the. The legendary White Dwarf one two one two seven, where they introduce the the Eldar lore and the Fall of Slanesh and, and all that kind of stuff, that just like I read that and that's just at the age of thirteen that was the coolest thing I'd ever read uh, I've ever read, and um, back you know back when I was younger I was you know, Tolkien's elves the like the Silmarillion type stuff where you've got these stories of elves taking on gods and and fighting these epic battles that kind of was always in in there so I think kind of this is the expression of that but um but mainly the I think the thing that I love most about the elves and, and in general and why I've got 
all three of the factions we're going to talk about, plus the Drukhari, um, is that it means that um, my hobby squirrels um, are satisfied, so I can just flip between them, and I don't have like a set scheme. So if you, you know, if I'm if I'm painting a marine chapter, like there's a degree of standardization. Obviously, you can do a lot of different stuff, and people do. But I think for me, because they're like an organized military in a way we'd kind of recognize as, as modern day people you go that's an you know there's a captain there's a sergeant there's a squad it's like you, you kind of expect and, and look for a degree of standardization well with Eldar and especially Harlequins and Inari where they're just like they're vagabonds and, and stuff it's like you can just do whatever the hell you want and mm. that I find really satisfying and, and yeah I try and theme them so that they look good enough together but if I have a hobby idea, I can always just do it. Yeah, there's a lot of creative freedom with the Eldar, isn't there? Um, like, yeah. even on a per, like individual level, there's often a lot of uh, scope in the narrative for personalization and individualism within those individual warriors. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious from even like you know the heavy metal styles of um, uh, Eldar armies that like the aspect warrior shrines will have their own scheme and not necessarily in matching with the army if that makes sense you know the shrine yeah. has its own scheme and then the individual shrines have their own schemes so it's not like all the striking scorpions will look the same the striking scorpions from one shrine might look different to the scorpions from another shrine even though they're from the same craft world exactly yeah and i think that that's that that freedom allows me to like put models which i painted five years ago in a quite different scheme to the ones I painted yesterday on the same battlefield, and they still look as they still look like an army. That's why my my main army is orcs. Yes, and they've got orcs have exactly the same thing, right? Yeah, like you can you've got the different clans within your army, so you can say this is the <laughs> blood axe clan, this is the blood axe bit, or these are the bad moons boys, or oh, whatever. Yeah. And, and, don't yeah, don't get me don't get me started on my predictions for orcs in tenth edition because <laughs> right little slight tangent I think they're going to go the way of the guard how you don't have a single faction army faction now you have a squad of Kachans a squad of Cadians a squad of uh, Krieg I think you'll start getting a squad of Evil Sons a squad of Goths a squad of Snake Bites and the orc army won't have a single clan army it'll be you'll pick traits that you, if you want there'll be a lucky trait if you want to represent them being death skulls there'll be a you know a choppy trait if you want to represent the army being goths but you'll still be able to take a unit of bad moon flash kits you know <laughs> in the army yeah that sounds very cool it, so, like, since... that's a really lovely idea i hadn't really considered that yeah since they introduced that model with the ninth edition guard codex, I was like, I think this model of rule sets would fit the orcs down to a T, more so than probably almost any other army other than the guard. <laughs> yeah, well, in the um, like in the craft world stuff, that kind of comes, that variation comes more from the data sheets. Yes, and like the different aspects and the different types of army you can, you can you can field right. Well, with the orcs, you can you can use boys in different ways depending on which um depending on, on what, what kind of like a uh, clan they're from yeah i suppose the the elder equivalent is that 
it's not that a a Sai Ham um, close combat aspect shrine is different to a um, uh, an Ulfway close combat shrine. The difference is that Howling Banshees do combat in a different way to Striking Scorpions. They're both combat orientated shrines, but yeah. it doesn't matter what craft world they're from. It's the fact that Banshees approach combat in a different way to how Scorpions approach combat. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Well, I'll be excited to uh, come back to the old Codex when in in tenth and and see how see how that comes out. <laughs> yeah, like see how wrong we were. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it is always orcs are one of my favourite armies to play against uh, because no matter what the result, like you're always there's there's loads of carnage and loads <laughs> of stuff coming off the table on both sides, and that in the end that's kind of the fun of the game isn't it yeah, yeah even yeah. if you lose and get run over you can still take great swathes of the orcs with you orcs uh, are uh, traditionally everyone's second favorite army right <laughs> yeah the army they like to play against the most yeah <laughs> oh i see right i was just wondering how does that work with their favorite army then is it, am i missing something oh yeah obviously some <laughs> whichever people. army they play is their favorite yeah. <laughs> their second oh, favorite army is the orcs they get to play against right <laughs> I always love playing Nids. Actually, that's that's a, an army which is fun to play against. Yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, it's like going into aliens or or starship trooper kind of ideas, and you, it's just a that's another really fun matchup. I, I mean, I know personally for the longest time, I've always just enjoyed playing and uh, like antagonist races, you know, so that I can show up at a game against anyone and feel like I'm giving them both a fun game. And like it feels like armies that should be fighting, you know. I can show up yeah. with orcs. I can be fighting anyone, even other orcs, and it feels like it makes sense. Um, I can show up with chaos demons, and they literally fight each other as well, or you know, just anything. They could be fighting chaos uh, mortals, you know, like chaos space marines and so on. Um, Tyranids are pretty much another good example. You know, again, they'll they'll be eating anyone in the galaxy. Um, it just for me, I always enjoyed having that experience more so than saying. I want to play with my Raven Guard and I show up and I'm going to be playing against Black Templars. Because I yeah. don't want to deny my opponent the chance to play with his Black Templars if that's what he wants to do. Obviously, that's the army he loves and wants to play with and I want to play with my Raven Guard. But there's just a little part of me that niggles in the back of my brain that's just like, I enjoy playing my Raven Guard, he enjoyed playing with his Black Templars. But part of me, personally, was just like, but I probably wouldn't have picked to play Raven Guard versus Black Templars. <laughs> I think I think that is why we're currently on the narrative wargamer podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I also think that's um, almost like a dungeon master type thing, and you organise events as well. Oh yes, and, yes I do. And like and, and yeah, and I think that I've heard several other people who are who are that sort of who've got that sort of mindset. They like the planning and like the like setting the narrative and sort of like the like and being a dungeon master is they like playing the antagonists mm. because they're like giving the experience to other people like that and i think that's kind of like i think you'll find you're not alone in that um yeah there's sort of like you say everyone loves playing my ox <laughs> they always yeah, yeah, do yeah, yeah. okay um also i would say is like i think that uh i said it in the in in, in 40 curious is the one of the things which i wish the 
James Workshop would emphasise more in the law is just how disconnected um, the various imperial factions are and how common fighting between them is. Oh, yeah. Um, because actually in, you know, in, in, in a lot of the books and stuff, you do genuinely get you know, sisters fighting marines or marines just carving their way through guards or, you know, because each of them are calling on, inquisitors calling on different factions and then, like, there's custodies with their attached imperial guard units and all of them sort of clashing with each other because of the the ties of loyalty they have. But that's not very well represented on the tabletop. Um, yeah, I always the example I always point to has been the the most in law conflict like that that I feel comes the closest to a tabletop conflict equivalent is the space wolves fighting the grey knights when they refused to execute the population on Armageddon. Yeah, because you could actually see I, I could imagine you know people playing space wolves versus grey knights on the table in the way that feels like a conflict. As what happened, as opposed to just being like, "Oh well, you know, this Inquisitor's got a beef with this Space Marine chapter, you know, or whatever." Yeah, we, uh, I mean, it's harder. Are, are to... we going to mention the Bad App War here? Is that a thing? Well, that's also another thing. Yes, <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the 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 argument there is that that was, you know, um, some forces of the Imperium falling to chaos, as it were. Although some of them obviously were misled. Um, as opposed to you know, like two loyal imperial forces just going at each other's throats for you know, I, th- I think stupid most of them political were, reasons. Most of them were mostly loyal through most of it. Yeah, they were basically arguing against taxation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and that's the yeah. appeal of heresy, right? It's that that's why it's uh, so many people who love narrative play it. It's because it's an incredibly easy narrative. It's like it's a civil war. So there's motivation for your force to fight any other force, pretty much just there on a plate for you. Yeah, I mean, um, I do, I do, especially like in the new edition um, of Horus Heresy, they've got rules and things like warlord traits and relics and stuff for every faction to be both loyalist and traitor. Yeah. So there are specific rules for using like a, set, uh, a traitor-aligned Ultramarines force. Because that particular company of ultramarines chose to side with Warmaster. Okay. Have you played any of the new Heresy then? I haven't played any of it myself, but I do know that that's a thing. Is that, um, like, I mean, one of the go to things you see a lot on social media is people saying, this is my, you know, Emperor's Children, you know, army, but they're a loyalist company, you know, so they're fighting in the uh, on the Emperor's side of the conflict. So I, I think you do, or Iron Warriors or whatever, I think you often hear a few more examples of where a portion of the Traitor Legions that stayed loyal versus portions of the Loyal Legions that turned Traitor, you know, with certain Calvinite exceptions. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's, it's an, an interesting mechanic that, you know, like I said, anyone can fight anyone within the Horus Heresy rule set and it, you, it will fit the law. Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely true in 40k as well. But it's just a much more complicated setting. Yeah. And like, there's so many more factions. There are so many more um, like narrative strings you can pull on. But because there are so many, it makes it a bit more difficult to it, it makes it a bit more difficult to construct in a sense. Like it's, it, 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 it's it does. Sort of, I, th- I think that you could you you can just go. 
I'm having a Horus Heresy event. Lawyers versus traitors. Bang. Job done. Everyone knows what's happening. Well, in 40k, you've got to either go, okay, we want Xenos or we want Chaos. We want, you know, you can do that if you want to kind of like create a, like a team event or whatever, but it just requires more work and it does exclude some factions probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a bit disappointing when you've got, oh, this is the Xenos side, that's Orcs and Tau and Tyranids and Eldar all together. Yeah. Or whatever. It's just, yeah. just not very satisfying, is it? <laughs> Especially if you're no. in a bit of a position where you, you could end up with Votan for, in both allegiances for Imperial and Xenos <laughs> and fighting <laughs> each other. Yeah. <laughs> we did, one of the guys in our local actually did run an Eldari civil war um, which just was all of, there was about a dozen various players from all of the uh, from the various factions and then that was a really really cool narrative actually and he, he did he did like the little interstitial texts about what was going on and, and how it was happening and, and stuff and that was one of the one of the best run campaigns um, well interesting and true to form he ran Jukari the evil faction the antagonist is just like yeah, it's the orcs well, interestingly, the in recent years, the addition of the Yanari are a really good narrative um, a tool for that because they have created a division in Eldar society. Like you know, they are a divisive subject, and even within like certain craft worlders, have now started you know going to blows against each other over debates and arguments about um, the the Yanari, um, particularly things like. Um, custody or protection of Yvrain herself. You know, like if she's been passing through a certain craft world and some Eldar believe that she should be, you know, stopped and restrained and she should stop what she's doing and others are all for it, then you know, there have been instances where they've come to blows over uh, protecting or trying to capture Yvrain. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. It's very cool. So, speaking of... Um, you know, the craft worlders, the Yanari, the Harlequins, all these different aspects and um, different sides of Eldar society. Um, that is going to be the main topic of uh, the rest of our conversation tonight, really, because this is going to be Aldari on Crusade, but it's not going to be one, it's not going to be two, it's going to be three factions in this one episode. So we've got a lot to get through, Tom, haven't we? Yeah, and I promise not to read out all of it because uh, otherwise we'll be here for the next six hours so <laughs> yeah um so um so if, if anyone listening hasn't already been and checked out um fort curious go check it out uh, we'll give it a shout out again at the end of the show obviously but there'll be links in the description below go listen to that it's a brilliant show of tom's you know own ingenious devising and um it's, it's definitely a good listen so um, maybe after you finish listening to this, you can go check out Tom's other work, as it were. And uh, yeah, as I suppose we'll we'll move on now with the rest of our own show, and we'll be back in a minute with uh, the first of the Aldari on Crusade. Kayla Menchik Kane calls to us. Don the war mask, for the Eldari are on crusade. And we're back. 
So, Tom, we've got a lot to get through, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a lot of substance and a lot of very cool stuff. Um, well, so we're going to start with the craft worlds. Um, yes. And in Crusade, I mean, the way I kind of approach it is is to see look at the rules and see what story they're pushing and how the mechanics work to tell that story, right? And so, you know, w- yeah. when you were covering the guard before, and you were talking about how you know, you're covering the regiment, like the regiment and the like, the army, that's, that's the character which they're pushing, yeah? And you're advancing in that, in that way. Or when you're talking about the demons and the great game, like, it's about those, that's the way the story is evolving. And with craft worlds, particularly, what was, what you see from the rules is a fundamentally a civil um, a, a, a civilian population becoming militarized over the course of time, and how that affects individuals within that system. Um, and we know from you know from the law, it's like the elder paths are how they how they function in society and, and it'll be no surprise to you to hear that the path mechanic is a really big part of a part of um, what's going on and what you do is you get by achieving certain tasks then you get path points but that's only uh, okay. that's only available to you after you've stepped onto a path and most of the people in the craft world you know they'll be part of the cook or part of the like kind of you know musician or whatever and so they're the guardians those sorts of things and what you have in this mechanic is the ability for guardians to become warriors for warriors to become warlocks for warlocks to become outcasts all of these sort of things so you so as your story develops you begin to see more specialized troops as they come on so say you have a unit of guardians and you're fighting against Tau or whatever, they can then become Dark Reapers. You, that's how, as they move onto the path, and as they improve on the path, then you might get an Exarch, and an Exarch with an Exarch power. Um, and so that's kind of the way they're telling the story, is, is, is by cha- changing sometimes literal units. And um, I think, uh, I think, Tony, you had a prediction of, of one of the requisition <laughs> points, didn't you? So that's probably a good one to mention now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, neither me or Dan have actually had the source material to hand. This is all sort of coming from Tom's copy of the Codex. Um, but obviously, we've yeah, we've done these on Crusade segments a fair bit now. Um, there's uh, some patterns that emerge across the different armies. And uh, I was going to be in no surprise at all to probably learn that at some point there is a requisition to turn a character into a wraith construct after they've suffered enough injuries and effectively died. Bingo. And uh, yeah, that's that's another strong part of the Eldar of the of the Craftworld Eldar Codex is about the wraith construct and how they how they um, how they interact with the living. Um, and there's some really really fun cool stuff to do with that. But yeah, so you've, as well as the normal XP, you you have these paths and so there are three paths essentially which you can step onto so you can have a guardian unit and then with via requisition you can step onto a um you can step onto one of the paths and the path of the warrior the path of the seer 
and the path of the outcast and and the outcast of the shroud runners and the rangers and the corsairs um, and obviously the seer is the warlocks and that's the that's the representation of that society moving towards a more fully militarized more the specialist units coming through the aspect warriors and warlocks are within the law like psychers who are devoting themselves to the way of war and they are as they move on um they you, you there are th uh, three steps um of the um in each of these paths and they get they are at five path points eight path points and 12 path points and the path points are the sort of things you'd expect you know if you if you are controlling an objective at the end of the battle or if you've destroyed stuff and you lose one if you get out of action and stuff like that but you know as you go up you start to like reroll ones reroll ones and things like things like that um but you can also change paths so in theory you could have a single unit of guardians and in you know in one of your early low low power level games they do well and so you change them into a unit of aspect warriors and then they're fighting and again they're going more you could turn them into a unit of warlocks and eventually at the highest point of the warlock path you actually there's a requisition which allows you to turn into a farseer and so in theory, you could trace a guardian's military career all the way through, I and mean, that would be a long-term thing because you're not going to be moving up these the, these paths very, yeah. very quickly. Hmm. But I think that that's the story they're telling, and most of the mechanics and the requisitions and things are on that. And of course, at any point within that, uh, you could get your your requisition to um, if you get too many battle stars. Um, and, and turn into a raid construct somewhere along the way and become a, <laughs> a sad and melancholy Eldar walking corpse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eldar on Eldar battles is the saddest battle, isn't it? So just goth battle. Do you think the... Oh, sorry, do you, do you think the the in, in, intended experience is that you start with mostly Guardian units and then as you play, they all specialise and become more... You know, more elite things and you end up with a list that's got barely any guardians in it at all um, I think that that would be like the platonic kind of ideal that they're that they're sure, telling yeah. but of course you want to play with your cool toys straight away and so um, I think that there's the, there's potential for, for doing that I think the that kind of starting with mainly guardians and moving on up is it, it would be a long-term sort of thing and maybe you just want to do it with, with one unit or like kind of concentrate on even with yeah. an end point in mind it's like i've got a farseer who in my you know 2k tournament games or, or, or narrative is, is always the one who i'm he's he's, he's my general and i'm going to tell their story from a guardian all the way up and so you're almost like deliberately creating a narrative hmm. on how they got there like filling in the backstory the prequels yeah, I mean, um, that, I that's a point we've made before is that just because the Crusade system um, facilitates tracking experience and development of every unit in your army, you don't have to do it for every unit. Like, you could have, say, three units of Guardians in your initial army and maybe just track it for one of them and see yeah. where that unit ends up. And um, once they get to a place where you like them to be, then then maybe think about start tracking it for a second unit. You don't have to necessarily have a, a grand plan you know, 
all three units from day one. Well, no, and also there's one um, there's one uh, upgrade to to your basic guardian unit, which is like something like grizzled veterans or something like that, and they don't fail out of action tests. So there's value in having them, just like and, and they so they the, the guardians can still be a, a, a developmental and useful part of your army. They can be your dependable militia, you know. So so that's still there. You don't have to change everything. But that's that that is there without so you're still moving that moving that unit through so that there's continuity so and i sorry Ken. yeah so, so so i had sort of one question particularly about this then so we've had examples of like units changing into like other units throughout crusade one of the famous examples being like sisters of battle you could have a, a sister squad who um become repentia and then yeah eventually can redeem themselves and go back to being like veteran sisters at that point um you mentioned obviously like the guardians and someone could end up down the path of the seer and then eventually end up becoming a far seer so is this an instance where you have what effectively is an infantry unit becoming a single character model then that is a transition that can happen yeah i mean so i mean literally the the way it works is that so you could select a unit of warlocks anyway in your list and then one of when you get to the highest level of the path of the seer, then you have a requisition which allows one of those to become a far seer, and you take one of those out of the units of warlocks because they're a unit of variable size anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so you would be literally promoting from within. Likewise, if you're on a path of the warrior, then you can upgrade your exarch within that. Um, weirdly, there isn't a way of, of turning an Aspect Warrior Exarch into an Autarch at any point. Which I was about to ask that question. Um, I know, because... and, and that's a strange that's a strange omission in one, in one way, I was thinking. but I was going to say, because what would have been cool to track with that would have been um, if you had, obviously, like an Aspect Warrior unit that transitioned through being like two or three different Aspects, and then you promoted a member of it to be an Autarch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think in law they have to have been every aspect warrior. Um, um, so that would I, don't, I don't think. Yeah, I guess it, I don't think they have to have been every. I think they have to have been at least three. I think it is. Um, and obviously, the, the the odd thing with it though is that they can't have been an exarch, because if they become an exarch, they become trapped on the path. Stuck on the path, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, so yeah, it yeah, has yeah, to be a non-exarch member who has gone through multiple shrines. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So that that's an interesting one. That um, that maybe that was a uh, perhaps a more complicated route. I won't be surprised if they play tested that at some point, and maybe it didn't make the final cut. Um, yeah, that that feels like one that they uh, they could have done, but would have had to write like an entire page worth of rules for yeah. it. Because the other question I had then is obviously you talk about how um, it, it the sort of faction mechanic for the craft worlders represents general general increase in militization of the force and of the craft world yeah does that mean i'm guessing is there some sort of mechanic around actually summoning and using the avatar this we will get to because it's the single coolest thing in the entire <laughs> right. codex good um, as it should be yeah 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 and it's the court of the young king which is just superb. The wording for it is brilliant, and yeah, it's, it will, we'll, we will get to that. Um, 
and so so that's that's your path and you, you're, you're scoring path points in the normal way um, and then of course you've got the agendas and I think the agendas are really very cool because they're very they're very thematic there's one which is fight for the future which is whenever you're up against chaos and specifically slanesh then you have a specific agenda to that and that's just you know it's a very thematic one my favorite is probably the recover spirit stones and it actually looks like quite a difficult one to achieve very much because it's whenever one of your units dies then they leave a spirit stone marker and then another one of your units has to pick it up use it by an action but if you have a spirit seer or something like that in your army it's like that's literally what they do and and it would just be such a cool thing to do um, and it would be a wonderfully thematic um, part of a, a crusade I think you'd, it would almost be worth like designing a special mission around that to kind of to force you to do it because it's so thematic um and then like you know say that that if you if you could recover enough spirit stones then you can get an experience bonus when you bring them as a wraith unit or something like that it's it's kind of one of those where you just get the 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 narrative possibilities are so ripe um and then there's one of the pleasingly like elves are weird fairy tale kind of inscrutable kind of fairies um in that uh it's called pass of fate which is the the farseers rolling their rolling their their runes and they're going this turn you roll a d3 oh you've got to destroy a vehicle or this turn you've got to destroy a character um and that's quite a fun one as well because it does play into that aspect of, and thing i really like about crusade <laughs> is that you can you can achieve your aims without it's an asymmetric battle so it's not about winning the battle or taking the objectives away yeah. from the opposition it's like achieving your own ends and that can involve yeah, that, that, losing i agree that's that's the top aspect of crusade in in terms of actually playing the game is that you like you're encouraged to do things that aren't necessarily at the detriment of your opponent yes yeah yeah and it's not is it there's less feel bad moments because you can have a very short game where it's totally one-sided in in a mechanical sense but it doesn't stop it being narratively satisfying and the other the other army also developing and changing and getting their um getting their things in the same way that actually i, I really i really love um battle scars i my, my my own personal motto is i'm not going to take any of my battle scars off because i feel that like that just adds character and yeah it kind of you know i've got a i've got a a character in their first two battles died both times, failed both out of actions, and is now unable <laughs> to benefit from any auras, and has also got an injured leg. And I'm just like this in, this really bitter, grumpy character <laughs> lurching around the battlefield. I'm just like, that's superb. I love it. I'm never going to change it. So uh, I guess, I guess yes. that that's a good point to ask um, whether or not the more recent trend for Crusade um, rules continues and. Are there or are there not any unique battle scars for any of the factions we're going to talk about tonight? Um, or not? No, with one sort of minor exception, potentially. But but that's the um, that we'll get. We'll come to that. It. But but no, is is the essential answer yeah. to that? Which is a shame because I I do feel that that seems to be a an underdeveloped opportunity. Notably, the Necrons have a lot of uh, battle scars that are unique to units and characters and stuff which 
adds a lot of character to their crusades but very few of the other um, races have got unique battle scars lots of battle traits but not many unique battle scars but You'll uh, you'll have to look in that codex I lent you. Ah, have we got some in the Tyranid one waiting to uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, devolve yeah. the Tyranids? <laughs> <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'll look forward to cracking that one open. Um, so, yes, uh, carry on, Tom. Uh, craft Holders. No worries. Well, I mean, I think it's... Uh, I, th- I think probably quite a lot of people just automatically use a requisition point to recover any battle scars. Because yeah, uh, and, and so probably, and I understand why that mechanic is there because you don't want feel bad moments. You don't want to totally well, cripple one of your units because of one of those. And, and, and I'm glad it's there, but I just think it shouldn't be an automatic take. I suppose um, it comes down to how it was written and the way that the reason why I think the Necrons are actually a great example of it is because a lot of their battle scars were were not just pure negative effects. They tended to actually be a bonus with a negative to it for example like i think there was a destroyer one that's something like you know reckless hatred as a battle scar which means that you get like plus one to it was either like plus one to hit or wound with that unit all the time but they could only ever target the nearest enemy unit yeah 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 and so it's got um, a pro and similar stuff in the like sort of that one of their um one of their battle scars is something like kind of you know they become numb to sensation and so they're becoming increasingly disconnected and like kind of bored with slaughter and, and, and bloodshed. But that does mean that they're harder to kill. You know, they've got better, yeah. more, more wounds and things like that. Um, better toughness or something. Um, so it's, it's an interesting no, design space, but, you know, yeah, maybe it'd be nice to see uh, some more of it in the future, but who knows? Yeah. Um, so in terms of agendas that's it um and so requisitions is probably the the next the next thing you guys normally normally work on and so we've already um we've already covered the ghost warriors so yeah when you've got battle scars you can turn a unit into wraiths which is cool and i really like that <laughs> and is you know bang on theme um there's one really nice one very niche uh, which is when you fight against slanesh um, at the end of the battle, and you will always use this because it's one requisition point and your general just gets bang, five experience points on the nose. It's just like if you're fighting Slanesh, then then that's there. <laughs> and you can nice. Aspect Warriors can get an Exarch, but yes, the Court of the Young King, which as I say is the coolest thing in the entire codex, and it, it made me giggle with delight when I first saw it. Um, and I'm sure everyone knows is that when a craft world summons the avatar of Cain, what happens is they have to sacrifice one of their exarchs. And so, to do this, the court of the young king and summon the the avatar of Cain, you cannot have an avatar in your list. It's not allowed at all, unless you've got to this point. And so you have to get an aspect warrior and they're already quite experienced and they already have an exarch in them and then that aspect warrior then loses that exarch and that aspect warrior unit can't gain any experience from the next battle and then you can get the avatar in and I just uh, you were talking about the pros and negatives it's like this could be you know, in, in, in a 50 power level list you're not going to have many aspect warrior units it's going to be like 2 or 3 <laughs> at most and if that's been fighting for a while 
and you know exarchs can be pretty tasty you know they can be blended mini characters in a sense in essence and then you're going to be there going i i've got enough points enough um enough space to summon and i've got i i can get the avatar and the avatar is really cool but to do that i genuinely have to lose one of my favorite characters in the army and i just think that's pure eldar the mechanics are really good really tight really cool um so yeah that that's that's the one and if i was running a pure craft world's crusade i would 100 be trying to make my exarch the best they could possibly be so i could sacrifice them um <laughs> i do love a good permadeath mechanic <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. um i'm assuming that isn't for one game that's just that's how you add the avatar to your order of battle exactly yes yes yeah, yeah so, so it's a permanent addition so then um then your avatar becomes um whatever power level they are um yeah so you, you you have to um perform the ritual of the young king in order to facilitate adding an avatar to your army going forward exactly yes yeah and so i mean from yeah, it's not something you'd be able to include until you've already built your crusade army up to much higher power levels than you initially begin. So you're probably talking about much. You're going to be in the seventies or eighties before you're probably playing any battles where the avatar is going to be going to be featuring. Um, but yeah, as, as a long-term gain, I feel like that's that's pretty cool to aim towards. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and how you tell the story of the war, and again the the militarization of the craft order. I mean, that's the ultimate step of it. It's like you're sucked into the war, you're sucked into the war, and then the avatar is the nuclear bomb, right? Yeah, I mean, again, as a a little insight into the uh, the Tyranids on Crusade, this sounds like a <laughs> a perfect faction to pair against them in a campaign because. The Tyranids do a sort of similar thing where um, they incentivize unit choices representing the different stages of Tyranid invasion. Oh, wow. So, That's um, pretty cool. If you, so, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, so between you both, like at the starts of the crusade between those two factions, you'd have more civilian forces and the Eldar fighting against um, the like vanguard beasts, the Tyranids, like Gene yeah. Steelers, Lictors, stuff like that. And then by the time you get into the end of your campaign, you'll have the avatars, you know, stomping around with various units of Aspect Warriors and Tool of Exarchs and Farseers fighting the big, you know, devouring creatures and the Swarm Lord and, you know, the big horde of Tyrians that are devouring the craft world <laughs> or attempting to. Yeah. But crucially, in both of those armies, some of the, the weird, big, crazy units at the end are the same units that started out as, like, little normal stuff because they both change in some manner through um, requisitions into different units throughout the campaign so it's another it's another changing actual units mechanic there is there is that in there yes uh, okay. adapting one might say yeah yeah I think specifically in the tyranid one you can change a synapse creature unit into another synapse creature unit oh that's really interesting to hear, actually. And and with the Tyranids being a relatively new um, new codex, that's 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 another really yeah. I look forward to hearing the episode on that. When's it coming out? <laughs> well, uh, when, when we get around to recording it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, 
So then, have we have we got um, just a couple of like battle traits and uh, relics of interest to the craft dwellers then? Yeah. So the um, no, it won't surprise you to know that the Eldar the Eldar are pretty keen on psychics. Um, they get a special psychic fortitudes table, which is pretty cool, yeah. um, including one spe- specifically for the warlocks. Um, and that's that, that's the coolest part of that because it's um, it adds to the kind of their ability to be powered by cane and stuff like that. So they become much more like warrior um, warrior psychers, um, which the majority of craft world psychers aren't, aren't as militarized as that. Um, but they have separate um, separate battle traits for guardians and Rathaean wraiths. Um, so that that's more little little bits of, of, of flavor and texture there. Um, and in terms of relics, there's one which is very, very cool, um, which is um, the the Shimmer Plume of Achil, Achilreal, which only an Ar, um, only an Autark can have. Um, and it does the thing; it's like minus one to be hit. When anybody charges you, they only get to roll one d six for their charge. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Um, that's spicy yeah exactly and it's just like I haven't seen that mechanic before and mm. in, in a crusade that's so that's the um, the mid-level um, uh, one it's antiquity the, relic is it antiquity relic that's yes. the one yeah um, and there's a, a massive big sword as the as the legendary relic but <laughs> um, but yeah so that's the, the, those are the kind of that's the flavour of it and I think they've done a really nice job of of pulling the character through the through the the ways of changing paths and especially like the Eldar tendency towards obsession and sacrifice, um, and you know, kind of the you know, getting more and more specialised on the path, getting trapped on the path with the and then the sacrifice towards the the end and that that ultimate tragedy of of Eldar and the, you know the emo gothic angle of them. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um cool um so that's that's the craft worlders themselves yes um so probably the next best one to examine then is probably the, the latest new kids on the block for the eldari and that is uh, the yanari because i'm guessing these are essentially going to be like an alternate take on the craft worlders Yes. Um, so, are you guys familiar with how Inari armies work? Uh, I can't actually remember these days. Um, so, how give us a, give us a little lowdown then on how the Inari function as an army on the table, as it were. You can take elements of all the different Eldar factions, including Drakari. So, you could have a an Inari and an, you could have an Inari army, which has Drakari. Craftworlders and Harlequins in it. Um, there are certain restrictions on on how that functions, but but fundamentally, it's like you can have you know a unit of witches fighting in the same detachment alongside a unit of Harlequins and a unit of Guardians. Cool. And with that kind of you know all all the flavors of the rainbow um, army, what they've done, which is quite interesting to give it its own feel is they're very melee focused and they're very psychic focused within their um within the crusade and that kind of makes sense right because the inari are telling the story of 
you're becoming you're, you're assembling souls soul energy soul magic towards um raising in the aid from this that's kind of like it's a sort of half awake kind of latent god at the moment and then raising it so that it then challenges slanesh and saves the eldar somehow but essentially it's a yeah. death cult so you're offering souls and blood as a sacrifice to the gods and it's very ruthless um in that it you know it, it almost regards you know dying as as a good because that's how you're powering the elder god of death in the ad towards its its final uh, towards its final form um and in the crusade um the crusade mechanic um what the way they emphasize this is souls for Iniad. i think i've changed it uh, changed the way i've pronounced in aid in the ad three times now so um <laughs> you'll have to forgive me because i have no clue um do you have any other ways How, what's the standard days y double n e a d i think i think Iniad or you need yeah okay is the two right. ones i most commonly hear um either or you know, it's all it's all souls for the soul god, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and so the way they've differentiated the mechanic uh, from Craftworld is that it really powers up your psychers. So as um, as Inari, you have access to a lot of different psychic disciplines. So you've got the Revenant discipline. You've also got the ability to have the warlord, uh, the warlock ones. You've got the ability to have um the uh the harlequins ones in there but you don't have the farseer ones so a lot of the traditional stuff where you'd run a craft world with guide and doom and stuff like that you don't run within that with inari and so what they do is that the the a lot of the um upgrades and a lot of the dis, uh, the 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 psychics are all about melee and mortal wounds and so it's a really in your face punchy uh, thing and I, I think looking at the crusade you could end up with psychers who are really really powerful like kind of striding across the battlefield trailing the souls of their, of their dead enemies behind them um, and their dead friends uh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, don't, we don't talk about those um that's just a downside when you join the they don't they don't mention when you join inari it's like we're here about to save the to save the uh the eldar race does that involve you dying no no we just <laughs> that's one side you need cares not from where the death flows only that it flows <laughs> you're not wrong yeah not wrong <laughs> at all um and if you look at the um the incarn model you're like nothing slanashi here absolutely nothing's like actually here at all um you know when when has the eldar creating a new god ever gone wrong what what could possibly be a bad idea um so so their mechanic is souls fit in the ad um and essentially it's it's like experience points in parallel so you add to your soul point tally by destroying a warlord by destroying units by at the end of the battle controlling objectives destroying the enemy with the most experience points um, or simply as a psyker if you manifest a revenant power so the special inari thing so again it's encouraging that point of you want to have a few psychers in your army not just because it benefits you but because that's the law and that's that's a really cool thing to have and once you've got 
um, these various these various soul um, soul points. Then you spend them effectively in another way of requisitioning. Um, and a little right. like the uh, avatar, there is once you get to a certain point, you can summon the incarn. Again, you can't have the incarn in your initial uh, order of battle, um, and so that's one of them. That's ten soul points. So it's not a massive amount. I mean, you probably reach that level fairly quickly. Of course, you've got to have the space within your list to fit fit them there. Mm. But if you want it and you're working towards it, you can probably get there fairly well. So um, just a quick question then regarding. Yvrain and the Visark. Obviously, yep. normally, you know, special characters don't have any uh, particular rules or structure revolving around them in the context of Crusade because they're not, you know, not unwelcome, but it's not about the special characters typically. Whereas, yep. by very virtue of being a Yunari force, I'm guessing the uh, Yvrain and Visark might be a bit more involved in it so is there stuff that's revolving around them within the crusade rules or is it just no, part of not army list construction it's 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 not um back in um an older the older editions you had to have one of the triumvirate in there in order to, for it to be an inari army and that's no longer true and uh, so they very much left it open to you for you to forge your own narrative um you can bring them in but there's no there's no special rules um, the incarn is different because it's a it's essentially a demon which you're summoning. Uh, yeah, it does have the demon keyword um, by the way? So grey knights <laughs> will be laughing at at, uh, at the incarn, uh, as um, as does the avatar, at least traditionally. That's uh, so why I assume he still has it in this edition. Ooh, um, because I don't play pure craft world. I play in 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 aid. I, uh, I play Inari. I don't actually know. Um, I can look that up, but um, I don't know. Um, yeah, so but anyway, soul points. And so soul soul points, you've got ways of... Um, that's how you get your crusade relics as well. So there's not like... Um, once, you, once your units get to a certain level, it's once you've collected enough soul points um, and then you can power up your characters and you can give them these soul-bonded relics, which are, is, is, is just a subtly different way of doing it. But that's all based on slaughter, right? It's not based on achieving um, sort of objectives like agendas and and, and 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 holding objectives within the game or scoring that way. It's specifically about about killing. Okay, so the soul soul points which you get, um, and you get them at, you'll get them at a reasonable rate. At least a couple of them a battle. Um, if you're on it, you could probably get to three or four. Um, if you've got the psychers, then you might even get more. Then you probably have a fair few of these soul points flying around. And you can spend them on various things. Um, now, one of them is summoning the incarn, um, which is similar. You cannot include the incarn at the beginning, but you can uh, summon them as long as you've got space on your order of battle. One thing you can do with them that's quite interesting is that I haven't seen this um, elsewhere, is that you can just spend a couple of them to give your units a boost in, boost in XP. So if you are just kind of that one or two uh, points down, you could throw a few soul points at them to get them to level up. Um, you could also spend them to improve your Psyker, so give your Psyker a Psychic Fortitude, a special um, Eldar thing, which is quite nice. 
you can improve your wraith units with them. So you just as, as you add a wraith unit from scratch, you can just add, make them better. Uh, and again, that's all very thematic and kind of on point. But the um, one of the most interesting things is instead of having crusade relics, you have soul bonded relics. So you won't you won't find like your antiquity relics or your legendary relics. They're just four of these soul bonded relics, and they're all quite cool. There's sort of ones which you can improve your psychers with. There's a little improved armor and things like that. And again, I think it's it's all combat based and. It's just quite a nice little little wrinkle in the rules, so that uh, yeah, you're using your soul power to give you yourself little power ups. That's cool. It's an interesting way of. I don't think I've heard of any other faction yet that explicitly spends a certain resource for experience points. Yeah, that's... and and that's it. It's this kind of like these little, fairly small tweaks, which just make them feel far enough away from craft world to be interesting in their own right um and with that summoning um the summoning um element as well yeah it's just sort of they've got cool names like knowledge of the lost and dread revival and teachings of Iniad as well and that's i always enjoy that um none of them have got as cool names as the various harlequin stuff but i think that might be my, my own private um prejudice talking yeah so uh, I do have a, a quick question as I'm as you said you can run a Yanari detachment with uh the Drakari in it at the, in the same detachment so do can do they have access to these upgrades as well yes so when you become Inari um then you lose access to your your base factions traits now because of the complications and these the subtleties of, of, of that army build it's not altogether clear how much you can use so do you remember you, uh, talking about the um the spirit stone agenda sure now that says craft world i think it's thematic for inari to collect soul stones technically maybe you can't in the same way that technically as a harlequin Inari Psyker, some of your psychic powers from your Harlequins specifically talk about Harlequins units and it's unclear as to whether you could cast your own psychic power on your own Harlequin unit if both of you are Inari. But I think right. for narrative purposes you can go, well I, can, I think they probably can. Yeah. It, it, so it's a little bit, these are the slight grey areas and it's, and it's why you know, Inari are ultimately a narrative faction and I mean, I think 40k is fundamentally a narrative game, and you know, it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like dating. Um, you know, you have a chat with the person you're playing and make sure that your expectations are the same and 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 all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But, but Inari is definitely a faction similar with the similar with the army building. There's there's, there's slight weirdnesses. So if I have a Drukari unit. In mainline 40k, if you're building an army, you have to have one craft world unit for every Harlequin unit, one craft world unit for every Jukari unit, and that's a fixed rule. But if you're in an order of battle and you're just assembling an army from that, does the same rule apply? Kind of at low levels, at you know, 20 point power level, you couldn't ever include any other units other than craft world on that basis. Sure. 
and I just think that you know as long as you're not yeah. taking the piss and just taking the most powerful stuff then you should just go my order of battle is my is, is one army and you just hand wave hand wave any of these kind of questions away um but if you were running a crusade kind of over a group of people who didn't know each other so well you'd probably have to discuss that a little bit okay um, but i don't blame the rules writers for not making it totally clear because you know you, you you can't satisfy everything and, and crusade is yeah if, if, if you're going to argue about army composition and and, and, and <laughs> yeah. rules just written in crusade you're probably not in the wrong format yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you mean Warhammer is a complicated game and Crusade is a complicated version of a complicated game <laughs> that's why we love it right that's <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it yeah. is the uh, the extra admin system so <laughs> yeah although running a Crusade at the moment uh, and, and having a pretty good grasp of the basic kind of structure of the game it, it's, it's not that much more especially as you tend to be playing at lower points levels it's 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 a bit more a bit to keep track of and it's a different thing but it's, it's not too bad sure yeah exactly you it it's difficult to expect everyone to have like keep the same level of um uh i i guess accuracy in your army list and everything as you would in like if you were going to a tournament or whatever yeah exactly um and on that same i mean leading on from that same question is that there is a there is overlap on the agendas and on the requisitions um and on the traits so fundamentally at that point you're largely just just re going into the craft world stuff there's one okay. agenda which is souls for strength which is just how you can get a few extra soul points and if you manage to do that kill five enemy units in melee over the whole battle then your whole army gets a gets a big old boost of um five of, of every, everyone on your order of battle it says gets um an increase of their xp so you're actually nice. getting xp for units which aren't on the battlefield at that moment <laughs> which is quite Cheeky. interesting it's only one but it's still quite a nice little wrinkle i haven't seen that before yeah but yeah that yeah. covers the inari and i think that they are the the least clear faction in <laughs> some ways because you've got to kind of work out how you're going to run it um, so, the, so the Yanari are for the truly complicated bookworm players out there who want to work out how to piece it all together. But um, how about for those? How about for those other players who just want to clown around? Should we say <laughs> the, the Harlequins? <laughs> so yes, wow. Um, so with the Harlequins, um, they've got a really fun mechanic which I really enjoy. Um, now. Have you played against Harlequins much? I've played against them a couple of times. I have played them once. <laughs> what points level was that? Um, it was. I think. I think I played against it at about a thousand points. Okay. Uh, I played against them at seventeen fifty. Okay, so my kind of feeling about them is that at 1750 they're a pretty decent army at 2k they're a pretty decent army now they've been nerfed and turned down a bit i think they're still quite good but they're not they're not crazy my experience of them at any points of a thousand or less is that they're absolutely devastating and <laughs> really, i mean I, and i've played I, I actually like 
put them on the shelf for a while because I, I would turn up our local club has the 800 points and I would take them and go I'm having a lovely time have you actually got to kill any of my units or do anything <laughs> um, and the answer was no so I, I think even with the, uh, the, the, the reduction in their durability and stuff they're still at lower points level they're gonna be a tough ask yeah I can see that they hit hard they're so fast um, and their their characters are comparatively low points like so you can include them in in small points i mean you could very easily have like a 500 point list with two or three characters who hit like trucks um but what they've done with the mechanic is they've made it about the performance and so it's not about killing it's about killing with the right thing at the right time and then where you are on the battlefield and so you're not just playing a game against another army you're also trying to look good doing it and <laughs> what could be more harlequin than that um, and i really like what they've done because they've made it so that you know traditionally in 40k especially with harlequins is you're trading because you're not very re resilient so you're pushing your units into stuff you're killing it and then you're expecting to die on the way back yeah. and so they've got a bit of a premium in some of these things on surviving and on being in particular places on the battlefield um, and on killing particular units with particular units of your own specified and I think that that element of the dance and stuff which they've got makes it more difficult for the Harlequin player to achieve those things while still being you know fundamentally quite good at the game like you know at that game at that points level and so their mechanic is called the grand performance um and there are three of them listed in the book um the trials of cain the forging of anaris and kegarach's lament and each of them are broadly very similar but there's differences in in the rewards and and how you achieve them but they're split into you go okay i'm going to do the trials of cain with my troop and they say um in order to there's a rehearsal phase and so during those the battles you fight in those you've got to achieve certain things so uh, for the trials of cain harlequin's character models from your army have destroyed enemy models with combined wounds characteristic of 75 or more <laughs> since All your right. army began performing this tale so that's you know that's as i said i mean the characters in harlequin armies can do the majority of the work um i went to an event this weekend where my, in one game my my troop master went absolutely berserk and inflicted i think it was i think we counted it was 32 wounds on the necron army over the course of three turns Oof. i just <laughs> off the scale right ridiculousness um because he was up against stuff which couldn't kill him um back because because he could zip away and stuff but 75 wounds is still a pretty pretty large total and it should then take you a while yeah exactly and then once you get to that then you go lads ladies are performances ready and you pick one battle and you go this is our grand performance and in that battle you um achieve accolade points so it's it, that's a, a spent 
victory points for that one battle and they are some of them are quite precise so you have to kill your warlord with uh, sorry their warlord with your solitaire in one of them it's your warlord needs to have suffered three wounds but not died and given that you're a five wound character that's not easy um and you get accolade points for achieving these things and then the number of accolade points you get um essentially gives you uh, rewards at the end of it so if you get naught to three uh, it says it's a little amateurish is that's the, <laughs> that's the title in the book um between four and nine it's an accomplished performance ten or more oh, it's a master masterpiece of theater uh, and so it's got these lovely kind of turns of phrase and, and stuff like that and so each uh, once you've had that battle and that that grand performance phase then you can go okay i'm gonna pick another one I'm going to pick Kegarach's Lament. And again, like the other ones, you're, uh, you're, you're building towards a set, of obje- a set of objectives. And so Kegarach's Lament, you have to um, manifest psychic powers or you have to kill units with troopers um, rather than with your characters. And so it, it puts different stresses in your army and it encourages you in those, when you're doing those phases, to field balanced armies so you aren't just going right my solitaire is tooled up is incredibly fast hits hard my troop master does that my shadow seer and those people can do it all when it's saying in order to prepare prepare for this next performance you need troopers and you want your psychos to be doing more work so there's ways of kind of mitigating those um, there's one particular of the performances which is actually really cool is um it specifies um nightbringer shards like, there's actual there's actual extra acolyd points available if there happens to be a nightbringer shot. And I think I was be... going to ask whether or not there was anything specific about fighting Sunesh, like a um, keeper of secrets, for example. Weirdly, not. I mean, that's just generally baked into the agendas and requisitions um, which the Harlequins can use. So they have the same the access to the same agenda, the fight for the future, which is where. Um, if you're fighting against Slanesh, then you get points there, and they've got these the same one of um, where was it? Uh, the requisition of, of renewed determination. So if you're fighting against Slanesh, you you can just get a bonus. But but no, interestingly, there isn't one specifically about mm-hmm. Slanesh. But there but is. you say there is one with the Nightbringer. So go on, tell, tell us about that. <laughs> um, well, it just says that uh, you can gain three accolade points if any enemy Catan shard units were destroyed by a Harlequin's unit, and you gain five if instead of a Catan shard, it's Catan shard of the Nightbringer. Um, so that's bring the ancient war in heaven kind of story um, to life there. So that's uh, that, that's a really cool one. I mean, it, I don't know how often it'll come up, but um, if I if I knew any um, Necron players to do a crusade, I'm like damn sure they've got a, a Nightbringer shard somewhere. Because <laughs> you've just got to do that, right? Um, and so that's the that's the, the, the fundamental thing. And, and as I say, the thing I like about it is that it it it's not it changes the way you play, so that you are working as a as a complete mask. You're you've got you've got functions for everyone, rather than just letting your characters just unleash hell and kill everything. Everyone has their own role in the performance. Yeah, exactly, and, and yeah, that's very much it. And um, one of the mechanics they brought in this edition uh, to that is um, something called pivotal roles, 
Um, and that's, they are for your characters, is how you specialize them slightly. So, you know, in a very small army list like Harlequins, you've got, you know, you've got your Shadow Seer Psyker, your Troop Master, your Death Jester, who is the big um, Shuriken Cannon Sniper one, and you've got the Solitaire. And each of them has access to three of these pivotal roles. And you, you can't start with those on your order of battle. You earn them during the rehearsal phase. So that's one of the things which is, is, is a nice wrinkle, is that that allows them to develop and become more characterful. So for example, uh, as an example of, of, of pivotal roles, your Death Jester, the guy with a big, your, your fire support character, um, they can either be um, the Harvester, um, and that basically means that if you roll a six to hit, it counts as four hits instead of one. <laughs> so you're literally, okay. sometimes if you peak right, um, then you can you can eliminate like half a squad in, in, in one shot. Um, and then there's the, uh, the Lord of Crystal Bones, which is really a really lovely one, which is, that's essentially, they are a, um, a fire suppression character. Um, so when you hit somebody with with your shot, then they their their move and charge is reduced, and they cannot Overwatch or set to defend. Uh, so that's another role. Or you can be the Rift Ghoul. You see what I'm saying about the, the the cool names of Harlequin. And the Rift Ghoul is is basically like a um, it's it's, a dish, it's piling mortal wounds on um, to stuff. So they are a genuine like kind of sniper character. Uh, and so by doing your your grand performances you're working towards giving your individual characters um those those pivotal roles and it also means that you can't build the most the most potent characters straight out of the gate right uh, and again it's a, i think it's a way they've done a good job of, of just pulling those characters back a little bit so that's the majority of the um the army but what is the really nice one and um you were talking before you asked a question a while ago tony about about whether there were um any penalties or, or, or scars or unique battle traits and this is the solitaire and if you're playing a harlequin's crusade you're going to want to have a solitaire in your army because it's just cool as, as well as in the performances themselves, they have particular roles, um, and some of the, some of the accolades you get in the grand performance battles are tied to solitaires. Um, but they have something which is a wonderful mechanic. It's a little bit complicated, but it's only on one model, so it's fine. Um, so after a grand performance battle you can do the role of the damned if a solitaire's there and that just increases your your access to accolades uh, so you can just like if you've achieved a couple of things then you can maybe add a couple of couple of bonuses on but the real one is the path of damnation now you know in in the law the solitaire is the only one of the harlequins who who eventually has to fall to slanesh when they die their soul gets eaten by slanesh and so they are always separate yeah. So one of the things with the role of the damned is you always have to end your battle six inches away from the other harlequins because they're not that fond <laughs> of you. Um, and that's just a, a nice little rule. Um, but if you are a, a solitaire and you fail an out-of-action test, then you can spend, um, instead of taking a battle scar, 
you can spend a requisition point on the Path of Damnation. And instead of determining a battle scar, you roll 2d6 and subtracting one for the result for each damnation point that model has. And on a two or less, remove that solitaire model from your order of battle. So it's the permadeath mechanic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good old so, permadeath. Yeah. But the Path of Damnation bonuses, which you can get, are really cool. Uh, so you roll a d6 and um, you can do things like um, you add one to your your model's strength characteristic. So now you're a solitaire hitting at strength seven. Oof. Um, and given how many attacks you are, you've got, and you're um, you're, you're hitting on twos, you're gonna you're gonna put hurt on stuff going up from strength six. Or you cannot be targeted um, by a ranged attack unless you're within twelve inches. You don't want to be within twelve inches of a solitaire. That's a bad place to be. <laughs> um, so these path of damnation bonuses are really cool but obviously if you roll a double one mm-hmm. on your first time he's dead and if you if and and you you subtract if you know if you've got the one damnation point already and you want to go for another one suddenly on three you're three a roll of three on 2d6 and you're dead yeah and i just think those that again a bit a little bit like the x arc Mechanic for summoning the um, summoning the um, avatar of Cain. It's something where it's going to force you into a position where maybe you're risk risking a, a proper loss of a character you've you've developed and, and changed. I think that's that comes baked in with the solitaire and it and it's the, their tragedy and that they brought that out in game mechanics is just lovely and and I think that's a really really cool thing for them to have done. So yeah, yeah hats cool. off to the the designers. There's, you can see there's a lot of lot of love and a lot of attention being paid in some of these rules. Um, so yeah, I think that that's one of my favourite favourite things in the whole place. Um, requisitions, pretty straightforward. You don't really need to know any about that. Um, battle traits, um, the psychic fortitudes I mentioned before, they're another good one. And given that the um, the shadow seer is actually already pretty tasty in close combat um, they can get benefits where suddenly you're adding one to that uh, to your damage um, so your basic close combat weapon with four or five attacks is going to be hitting on um, hitting on twos your strength six and it's d3 plus one damage you know you, you're beginning to be able to take on some quite big things with that yeah. um, and then they have a special uh, battle trait just for the Harlequin troopers. So the troopers are the troops, um, and two of those three are actually tied specifically to um, in in the in the law. They're tied to characters, um, so they do some of the s- similar things to some of the characters, but just at a much lesser level. But they're complementary to them. So one of them is uh, if you're close to a shadow seer, um, then uh, then you get to add one to wound rolls. Um, in your melee phase and that's pretty you know that's pretty good because the one yeah. downside of harlequins is that they generally struggle to um, wound high toughness stuff and to get that plus one wound is really yeah cool. there's, there's not typically a lot in the older you know uh, range of stuff that manipulates their strength and toughness characteristics exactly. as it were so anything yeah, and, that manipulates the wound roll is really good for them exactly and and, and sh- in, in that case shadow seers 
already come baked in with an aura of minus one to be wounded around them, which is just one of the, one of the best things. Um, I love I love that mechanic. It's so cool. And then this one is they're flipping that, and the troopers are, are finding it easier to wound other stuff. And I think that opens up a few modeling opportunities, theming that that troop so that maybe you mirror your shadow seer a little bit. Um, and then the same with with one of the other ones. It's her. It's uh, mocking killers. And, and they're tied to death jesters and that's a leadership debuff um, and in the harlequin model range you've got death jesters obviously come with like a skull face but there's a yeah. lot of masks in the set and you come with tons of masks that you come with masks which have sort of skull elements on them and and so on and so you know if you're going to model that group you can just pop some masks off and then Take the take the ones which are skeleton themed and put them on a troop. I just think that's a lovely modelling opportunity as well. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and other than that, we've got the relics. There's a there's an improved Harlequin's kiss, which is nice. Um, <laughs> the Harlequin snog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's called the serpent's tail, actually, which is a little Ooh. little weird. Um, and it's just kind of yeah. It's just a bit better. Um, the Mask of Secrets, which is um, cool, so it's no re-rolls against you. Um, you've got a, uh, you, you've got leadership debuffs, um, which you know, can sometimes be effective and nice. It's quite fun, um, and that really covers it. Um, so yeah, you've got the three. I think they've done interesting things with each of the three factions. It doesn't feel like it's just a bolt-on or. or add-on and, and in all the coverage of, I saw of the Eldar Codex it didn't cover any of this so I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity to talk about it because like preparing for this really really made me kind of think about it and delve into it and, and I really enjoyed it good and glad awesome. like it's yeah we we've had a great time listening to it and sort of you know learning about what they can do and I think I think the Eldar Codex in particular probably speaks to the peak of where crusade has come since its inception at the start of ninth edition you know the eldar codex is a chunky tome you know it's up there in size compared to the space marine codex but part of that these days is because of the sheer amount of crusade rules that there are in the um the eldar codex compared to the lack of crusade rules in the space marine one <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah, the first Marine Codex was a little bit lackluster. Started <laughs> to pick up with the Necrons, is, is my feeling. But even that, yeah. there's a, it's, it's still come on away from then, but I definitely really enjoyed the Necron ones. And it's... I, I know there's still plenty of other, you know, fun stuff in, like, the um, the Leagues of Votan, and we've covered the Astromilitarum, and I think and we may possibly be having Chris on in the near future to talk about the World Eaters on crusade and i imagine they've got some fun crusade rules that that will be very interesting because that might give us a bit of a clue as to what's going to happen with crusade going into uh, the next edition yeah people yes. are talking about it as the proto 10th codex right yeah yeah that that will be really interesting because like i say obviously we all here on the you know on the channel and on the show and everything we really hope crusade you know sticks around into 10th edition and that it's uh it perhaps evolves into its next, you know, natural progression. But 
Um, it's kind of a little bit up in the air at the moment. We don't really know what, what its fate is going to be. I mean, we've not seen any new Crusade mission packs um, since the, the Warzone books. So who knows? Uh, I am interested, though, to see where it goes and hopefully it continues to go places. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah like... I, in, in a sense, it's like what we've seen has been there's been a lot of throwing stuff at the wall and see what works with these codexes and you don't with the crusade stuff and we don't really know how the designers feel about it or the feedback that they yeah. had and there's a lot of stuff which works but there is also this weird thing that you know for example with the inari one the souls for an aid kind of works as semi it's essentially parallel xp and, yeah. But you're also using normal XP rules as well. And if I was to wish list for uh, for tent, I would I would definitely say is like have a generic one for people who don't have a generic Crusade XP thing, and then each codex has is like right that no longer applies, or your your XP get used for this. So your XP points are now souls for Iniad or path points. Sure, and 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 then and that just cuts off that parallel lines of of, of advancement and simplifies it a bit. Um, but and you could do that without losing any of the nuance and the and the flavour. Yeah, um, it's just ever so slightly simplified. One of the uh, the biggest issues I think Crusade has had is that most of the books are written with the intention that you will play your crusade force for like 10 20 30 games to get the most out of it <laughs> yeah um, and i don't think anyone realistically does that uh it's just just not really the way people actually play the game like, i mean can, yeah if you're gonna play you know 20 games in a year even and you're looking at you know playing every other week are you gonna play all 20 games with the same faction yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if if you are someone who has more than one faction, even just having two factions that you regularly play with, yeah. suddenly you're halving that count to ten games. You know, across the entire year with that army, if you're still playing every other week, like you know, like once a month with that army. Yeah, and this uh, the thing about having kind of like a parallel track for uh, XP and path points or or whatever um, feels like an attempt to kind of like speed that process so that you get upgrades a lot faster mm. and you might you know get the most out of it in a few in in fewer games than they originally intended when they started writing these rules i know that the the other um you were talking Tom, just then about how they've been like throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks and i think two examples of that as well with Crusade rules that have very unique mechanics compared to a lot of the other books is the Gene Stealer Cult and the Tau Empire, where the core of their mechanic is actually more about conquering worlds and it has more a sort of like almost like map based campaign system. <laughs> you know, that you the Jukari like. um, has a little bit of that as well. Yeah, uh, yeah I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think those ones have more of a tangible outcome of every game you know where like every single yeah. game feels like you have either achieved or not achieved 
the next step of the ascension plan or bringing the next world into compliance you know um so perhaps something along those lines where every game feels like it has more of a weighted outcome than just gaining more xp you know <laughs> um yeah could be interesting so and yeah though those like cycles tend to be written so that you complete it over i think about 10 games or so and then you start again yeah that seems to be the rough i think it was it in the um uh, in the chaos demons it's eight games <laughs> yeah, sort of. and then the game See. starts again because yeah. obviously the, the eight rounds of the great game of yeah. course it would be eight rounds so and the grand that... performance in the harlequins um there's a minimum of five before you can do a grand performance so you can sure. kind of you could build up to build up to six or seven probably with them yeah i mean i suppose there's also the scaling of crusade itself to consider like if in theory you're starting out and you're only playing 25 power level games you know you could get through four games in true like two evenings you know <laughs> i will say though that as the games scale up you get more um experience and requisition and stuff from uh, and from the game in larger games because you get more agendas and you get more units playing yeah so you're getting more so, payout per game but yeah i guess you're not getting down the campaign track as quickly if it's based on playing i mean yeah games. it depends on the <laughs> the specifics of it yeah. So how big have you actually played? Uh, what power level have you reached for, for Crusade games? Uh, personally, um, most of my sort of Crusade games of the Orcs have kind of reached around the 1500 points. I've never yet played a full 2000 point Crusade game. Uh, I've played some that were... So I, I played a couple of Crusade leagues at my local uh, friendly local gaming store um, and they... Uh, kind of artificially increased the power level every round so it started at 25 power then it was 50 then it's then it was 75 then it was 100 at the end so i have played some at the 2000 point equivalent but it we kind of like we didn't get there the way that's intended we got there artificially if you will yeah i mean yeah. that's more of an escalation league with, exactly with, yeah. with sort of some experience bolt-ons rather than like the out of the book crusade yeah, which is, I mean, it's just fine. I mean, I think you guys have been brilliant at saying it's a toolkit. GW have thrown out all of these different things. Do you, you know, do your own thing? Like I've taken your advice on on designing, um, like designing missions for my crusade uh, to tell a story, which are just kind of like out of the book missions, tweaked ever so slightly or just reskinned. Um, and, and it feels to me like, and going back to the a little bit about the the like the, the, the planetary conquest mechanic in in gene Stealer cult or the um or the or the um, area conquest in in Jukari is that you could very easily just reskin those for like an imperial civil war or like lords mm. of a particular hive you could just like do do like hive gangs against each other yeah. and just kind of like use their use their, those mechanics which which they play tested um, yeah. and, and just just reuse them in different ways. I've, I mean, I've... you can you can literally reskin the Gene Stealer one to be a Chaos Cult uprising. Yeah, you, you yeah, don't you have could, to change uh, it. You could you could reskin the Tyranid one to be World Eaters literally eating a world. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe might be a bit of a stretch. 
I, I, I'd be really interested to hear you when you get to um, the crusade of um, of Tyranids because I do remember having that discussion down and, and thinking what the hell are they going to do with Tyranids because from all of the so much of the stuff uh, for crusaders is character based and individuals and telling those stories and, and for me a lot of the a lot of the joy of Tyranids is that they are this kind of like this 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 locust swarm right and yes they have yeah. larger things but they don't have characters in the same way and an old one i sorry aside all the, all the parasite of more tracks but yeah, generally speaking, that's not their fun, fun fact, me and Dan discovered recently, the Parasite of Mortrex, not a special character. Uh, what? <laughs> Just a regular okay. character. Yeah, right? Even I thought it was one. It used to be, obviously, in old editions, but the, the modern-day yeah. Parasite of Mortrex is simply a single-figure unit that is so a you can, attack you can take three of them if you want. <laughs> Weird, huh? <laughs> Would you? <laughs> no. Would you, though, Dan? No, <laughs> good. Yeah, we 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 double checked it, triple checked, didn't we? Because we were convinced it was like you know unique character keyword army can only include one of these models and blah blah blah. No, none of that. We we even checked it against things like Old One Eye and the Swarm Lord for comparison. And yeah, Parasite Mortrex is just a type of bio creature now. It's just a bio form. It is a Parasite Mortrex, not the. <laughs> So yeah, thank you very much, Tom, for you know taking us through the the many sides of the Eldari on Crusade. Um, even if we may possibly have you back on a future episode for a the Dark Kin, as it were, on the Crusade, and see how the Drukari factor into all of it. It's a very different mechanic, so and I'm glad we didn't cover it tonight. I think we think think we've done enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we sort of you know head out for the. The, the evening as it were um, we'll round everything up with our usual sort of community shout outs and um, recent uh, content creators or products or just other things in the hobby that have uh, you know taken our interest recently that we want to uh, shout about so um, Dan I believe you've got uh, something in mind that you wanted to just uh, mention <laughs> yeah so um, I I haven't really been devouring much uh 40k media recently if i'm honest um but one thing you, i have done just been starring in it <laughs> yeah quite one thing i have done is uh listen to some some black library audio books uh and i particularly wanted to shout out the um uh relevant to what we were talking about earlier when we mentioned the bad ab war uh it was i would listen to huron blackheart master of the maelstrom uh, by Mike Brooks, uh, and that was very good. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's flown over, uh, flown under the radar a bit with a lot of uh, 40k fans uh, because Huron is not a uh, sort of like big main character in many people's eyes, but it, this is one of those books where they take a character that's slightly second tier and make them seem like the biggest deal in the world. Uh, it's just really cool, um, and the audiobook in particular is a really well narrated. Uh, it's it's quite fun and funny in a way, and obviously uh, dark and chaotic because it's you know the subject matter. Uh, so just want to say, yeah, it's really cool. Definitely recommend, and also go follow Mike Brooks on Twitter because he's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, Heron as a character is one that I've always really enjoyed. You know, um, I think it, his place within like the chaos 
uh, range of characters is um, always an interesting one because he, like you say, he's somewhat downplayed a little bit, but actually, he's one of the other like major chaos warlords out there in the galaxy. He's yeah, he's kind... a big deal. Yeah, he is a big deal. He's he's realistically the most likely contender to Abaddon's control of the Chaos Legions. Yeah, like... without <laughs> without spoiling it, um, he Abaddon is is mentioned and referenced in the book, um, and as a sort of uh, he's kind of bigger than me, but I don't necessarily have to do what he says. Yeah, Heron's in one of those rare places where he's one of the few people who doesn't have to answer directly to Abaddon if he comes calling. Yeah. And Abaddon actually has to more sort of like imply he's asking a favour if he wants her to do something for him rather than actually just telling him to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and the, the whole time <laughs> they have that sort of relationship of um, we both know we're both going to stab each other in the back as soon as we get, uh, get the chance. But until <laughs> that time comes... We will sort of maybe work together when need be, but we both know that backstabbing is coming. <laughs> yeah, classic. <laughs> so yeah, um, go check that. Go check that book out. And uh, Tom, obviously, we've already mentioned um, Forty Curious, um, but again, you know, people should go check it out. It's a great podcast. It's a great show. Um, but how about yourself? Have you got um, anything you would like to mention or shout out? Um, yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd love to shout out the uh, Bristol Gaming Collective, which is um, my local club. I'm very, very tangentially um, involved in, in sort of running it. I mean, like very incredibly, incredibly not, but but just sort of like part of the advisory kind of group. And um, they put on a load of events um, all the time. There's more time uh, to... Uh, uh, campaigns running there's a necromunda campaign the guy who runs the necromunda campaign is actually the uh dave from the uh, the first episode of 40 curious the history professor he's got he's completed necromunda in the sense he has all of it he has every game <laughs> he, he's the only person i've ever seen who's run ash waits with all the stuff and it was gloriously stupid because they had various things where there was a high wind and there was high sun and everybody was basically running around the battlefield blind and being blown over and killed um <laughs> which is peak necromunda really while vehicles were sort of zooming around on the, on the road um and so the bristol gaming collective is where i tend to play is where my fr- friends mostly play and it's a really really good positive venue they run lots of events um i went to an event there last weekend which is my first event for ages and it was just joyous and um there was so much laughing didn't have a single rules disagreement let alone dispute um over four games the whole day and it was it was fantastic um on the audiobook front i'm actually um have you guys uh, listened to the vaults of terror series by chris Raid? I haven't, so, but I have in, heard some people um, like discuss reviews of them and so on, and I've heard they are good books. Yeah, yeah Inquisition in stuff based on terror, um, and really, really good. I mean, it really sort of a very good depiction of the sheer hell of living on terror if you're a normal person, and how um, how much of a sort of parasite it is on the rest of the Imperium, really, and how dysfunctional it is. Um, definitely not the good guys. Um, and I'm also listening to um, 
to the uh, Fabius Bile Primogenitor series, and you were talking about um, Huron just now, Dan, and yeah. what you were saying about him made me think a little bit of um, a little bit of, of Fabius Bile in that he's powerful enough that people don't can't just tell him what to do. Yeah, um, but they also wish that they could and wish <laughs> that they could stab in the back. Um, but he's also just kind of in the first. Um, in the first sort of few chapters uh, of the book, you're like, they go, wow, you've just, you've got a huge amount of like really good ideas, but you're an absolutely mental torturer. Um, and I can't believe that I kind of begin to, oh, I quite like, you. oh, no, I really don't. Um, and I think it does <laughs> yeah. a really, really good job of, um, of, of making you feel interesting things about chaos characters. Um, in in and, and giving them nuanced character, so that would be my my call outs. Anything that helps portray chaos as you know deep, complex characters and individuals who are you know fundamentally flawed and you know quite uh, evil characters, as it were, but without being all mustache twirling, yeah. cartoon villainesque, is a uh, is always a great great I think read. And most a great of subject. the most of the chaos focused 40k novels has done a pretty good job of that to be honest yeah they're uh, getting better and better aren't they yeah i think um obviously aaron dempsey bowden is is renowned for being good at it oh yeah actually yeah the, these other ones i'm reading so john john french um and josh reynolds people like that also really really doing good work so yeah i've a mini shout out then for uh, lords of silence uh it's a good one it's a death guard focused on a similar vein of showing them with lots of little bits of nuance uh, in their evil, nasty, nurgly ways. I guess, tell you what then, since we're, we've all given a shout out for some sort of Black Library publication, I will yep, also on, shout turn. out... Yeah, I'll sh- uh, shout out um, uh, Gazgul, uh, Prophet of the Wah. Ah, yes. <laughs> such good things about that. It yeah. is good. It is good. Um, it's... Again, the framing device is great. Um, you know how it's basically um, the, it's the story of like Gazgul's um, rise to power um, within you know orc culture, told from the point of view of Makari. Yeah, um, and it's it's brilliant. And there's uh, so some really interesting things that are, you know happen in that book as well. Um, so yeah, like that that's a good one to go check out. Um, but the, the other thing that I was actually going to mention was um, I was actually going to do a little bit of a product placement, as it were. Um, yeah, to- totally, you know, um, not sponsored or anything. It's just... Uh, <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, always, always worth saying that. Like, this is just a, yeah. a thing that I've got myself and I love it and I think it's great and I want to talk about it. And uh, it's the recent addition to the... Um, uh, well, it's, it's a recent product from Green Stuff World. Um, but it is neither made of green stuff or world. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. uh, it is their uh, LED arch lamp. So okay. it's this. Um, it's basically, you know, it, it, it is what it says on the tin. It's a, it's an LED arch lamp designed for hobbying and you know working on a like a hobby paint station. And the reason why I want to try it out is because I so I got one for Christmas, um, and I've been using it obviously for. A couple of months now and it is absolutely great and i love it <laughs> it's um because 
for the longest time, you know, for years and years and years, I've, you know, I've gotten good LED lamps for my workstation off, you know, Amazon or wherever else. Um, but they always feel like I'm trying to repurpose something from like the general marketplace to be a hobby tool. Whereas this is something that is designed specifically for hobbyists. Like it fits the space. It gives me, um, you know, light from all directions, not just one, even like a long LED strip lamp still sort of only gives me a, a certain amount of directional light and i've seen on instagram accounts and twitter and all, all over the place various hobbyists who have diy'd something like this you know made themselves their own like arch lights from led strips and so on well this is the first time i've seen an off-the-shelf product of an arch light and uh, I, I want to get it and give it a try and um, i was willing to you know not commit to it if I didn't think it was a great solution, but I've say I've used it for a couple of months now and it's brilliant. So I I fully endorse it. Like if it's if you're looking to try and get you know a good LED lamp to you know add to your paint station and to work with, then it's great. Um, it, there'll be a link below to you know go check the uh, details out on the specs for it over on Green Stuff World. But yeah, it's um I I I really enjoy it and I think it's a it's a just a great little product for hobbyists. Fantastic. Cool. Um, also, it's really good f uh, for your photography and models as well. Uh, um, yes, it's like like a light box without the box. Yeah, basically. Um, just by virtue of having these two little uh, like feet on either side of the arch rather than like a large lamp base, um, it's, it's really good for just being able to uh, put models under the arch light um, take photos and you'd have to worry about trying to get the uh, the lamp out of the shot or anything. It's just really useful for photography as well. Very cool. So yeah, um, I think that is uh, that's everything for tonight. So uh, thank you for coming on, Tom. Let's say uh, hopefully we might hear from you again in the near future. And in either case, I'm looking forward to appearing on Forty Curious myself in the near future. Yeah, we need to schedule that recording soon. Soon. If our hectic lives allow, yeah, at some point we'll uh, we'll find some time. And well, thank uh, you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, no worries. I say you are more than welcome to come back on again in the future, and uh, I'm sure we will have you back on again in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, come back. So yeah, uh, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dan. No thank problem. you, listeners, and. Um, Actually, uh, I suppose just before we go, Tom, was there anywhere else people can find you? You know, um, Instagrams, anywhere else where, where the people sort of find your stuff? Um, well, 40 Curious on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. And my personal hobby stuff is at Sons of Ananta um, on Instagram, which is Sons of and then A N A N T A. And you'll see lots of pictures of my absurdly over-detailed Eldar on that. Yeah, it does say. Go check them out because they are spectacular. I mean, everything from the schemes, the freehand, the sculpting, the basing, all of it. I mean, I, I especially enjoy the... Um, it's either a Wraith Lord or a Wraith Seer, but um, it's, it's holding the body of a fallen Eldar. And it's, uh, it's such a, a lovely little pose. Thank you very much. Done. Uh, that's, that's my favourite model as well. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, 
so with that I think that is genuine everything for tonight so I say thank you everyone for listening thank you both Dan and Tom for being here and uh, yeah until next time guys this has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast helping you to discover more ways to play 40k bye bye